This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. And Jeff, we've been really looking forward to putting out this conversation with Ian Chapel today. We've been plugging it for a couple of months. We recorded it, I think it was the first week of February after the Australia-Sri Lanka Test Series concluded. We, we jumped on the, well, we, we, we drove up to Canberra at short notice, or sorry, from Canberra to Sydney, got a bus up to Ian's house, uh, another hour away from, from town and, uh, and sat down with him at his home to record this conversation and uh, listening back to it last night um, you can kind of forget what you've discussed when it's been a couple of months but it was well worth going back and listening to it because uh, he tells some old yarns some new stories a lot of breadth uh, of his whole life in cricket really across about an hour and a half yeah it's interesting when it comes to who grabs our attention in terms of who we want to interview and talk to what was it for you because I know that both of us were very keen to speak to Anne Chappell at some point um, on, on the show. Why was it that you wanted to have that long conversation with him? Oh, I think for me it was that uh, he gets pigeonholed as, as being the being, well, several different things, really, doesn't he? And, and a lot of them do seem to contradict each other. So he's, he's considered to be the, you know, the godfather of sledging, for example, which isn't a tag which he particularly likes. We go into that in the conversation. But at the same time, a, quite a compassionate human being who's been involved in, the, uh, in, in several, I guess, political campaigns in the last 20 years or so. Um, you know, such a fascinating cricketing family as well. A prominent voice through our television screens and on radio, you know, through the duration of our lives as well. So, you, you know, he'd be amongst the, the top few people that we feel like we know in cricket and to get a chance to go through that or with him it was an irresistible opportunity and he's been so generous to you and I in the press box over the last few years it seemed like a um, seemed like something we should we should do before the summer closed for me the key thing is that he's he's like the foremost no bullshit character in cricket there's no hesitation to say what he thinks regardless of you know trying to manage any sort of personal cost or whatever it might be and it's not sort of say what he thinks in the in the really obnoxious way of some people who get around going you know in the current climate banging on about um well i just tell it like it is even if it gets up people's noses because there's compassion there as well it's not about getting stuck into people but it's just about not being afraid of um commercial implications or that sort of thing i I was thinking about it during the ipl recently when ms Dhoni flared up and stormed onto the field while his side was Mm. batting and um in the post-match interviews he wasn't even asked about it like it wasn't (laughs) mentioned It, it was a bit too awkward a bit too embarrassing to bring it up um and i thought if you know if ian chappell's on a tv broadcast there is no way that that's gonna happen so that that willingness to uh, live by your principles is, is something that that interested me. Yeah, he manages to balance that kind of quiet integrity about the way he conducts himself, and he, you know, and and expresses a lot of views on a lot of different issues. But at the same time, yeah, a very a very uh, a very high bullshit detector, or a bit bull, bullshit radar, I suppose, which is reflected in the way that he talks to us. It's a fairly colourful conversation, and we're going back to it, it last it night. Is. Yeah, that, that's why it took us a couple of months to get it out because we just had to edit out all of the the length. No, no, we Actually, don't. We haven't we, 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 no, we, we left it all in yeah, because it's, it's much it. more entertaining that way. This isn't a full. Uh, 
that conversation between you and I today, Jeff. So we'll do that later in the week. There's a lot to trawl through in the usual way on the final word. There's the stash that's going on between the BCCI and Cricket Australia, which, which is fascinating um, and has implications for both the Australian summer coming up and also the, the women's IPL exhibition tournament that's taking place in about a month from now. There's the, what was going on last week with the United States of America getting ODI status, which was a lovely scene last week, but also will be a, an interesting talking point. There's plenty going on with the England team ahead of the World Cup off the field with Alex Hales, which is worth going into. And the Australians are, are back in Brisbane this week for their pre-World Cup camp. So there's tons to trawl through, but we'll do that all later in the week and we'll focus our attention today on our conversation with Ian Chappell. USA! USA. <laughs> I can't, can't wait for Australia v USA the first time that, you know, we'll, we'll play a T20 international or something. Uh, oh, I tell you what, well, well, one thing I will say about that is that uh, it, 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 Australia hasn't hosted Bangladesh in a bilateral series since 2003 in Test cricket. I think it's 2005 and limited overs internationals. Now the USA can play one day internationals. How long before they get them out to Australia? I'm sure it won't be long. <laughs> can we double it up like um, when they have one of those exhibitions? baseball games at the SCG or something yeah. you know, the Arizona Diamondbacks will come out we'll play a double header with, we'll have a cricket pitch out in the middle as well yeah and funny that you, you mentioned uh, baseball there Jeff because that's a, quite a strong theme of our conversation with Ian Chappell of course he, he played baseball for Australia as well and representative baseball up until I think he said the age of 58 or something like that before we do cut to the longer conversation Jeff as always we should uh, discuss the fact that we're getting plenty of support on our patron or Patreon account that we set up a couple of months ago Ago. You, you, you've been on the tools on that again yeah, this week. Yeah, we'll, we'll have a very brief round of Nerd Pledge. So <laughs> Nerd Pledge is the, the game that has been invented by our patron supporters. Patrons are a way where you can financially support the podcast if you feel like it. It's on patreon.com slash the final word. And rather than putting in, say, $5, people have been putting in different amounts to try to test Adam and I with our cricket knowledge and see if we can join the dots as to what they're referring to. Numerically speaking, there are quite a few that have come through that we'll get to in the next episodes. So thanks, everybody, for those. Also, a shout-out to a couple of new subscribers on the normal level, uh, Nathan Garland and Warren Lush. What a pair of great names. Garland, the beautiful bouquet of flowers, and Lush, which describes a beautiful bouquet of flowers. Hello, I'm Mr. Lush. What a what a fantastic moniker. I, as always, I say this as someone whose name is Lemon, so I'm allowed to um, enjoy other people's names as well. So thanks to those guys. Let's pull out a couple of numbers from the Nerd pledge hat uh, oh, but first let's look at a couple from last week that we got wrong one I can't believe because there was there was a 153 that came through from Brendan Crabb last week and we all said it's got to be Lara 1999 mm. But you should have got this one, Adam. It's Mark, Mark Wall's highest score. score. Yeah, I, I did see the tweet that Come came on. through. Yeah, you, you think I would, but I don't know. Resident expert. Yeah, uh, or maybe this says a bit about the, my, my cooling, my interest in Mark Wall since I've started working in cricket. <laughs> I don't know. You can dig into that. It has t- to a certain extent, but I guess that's that's the way it needs to be when he was someone who we were, were covering when he was a national selector and, and so forth. But yes, indeed it was when he, if I recall correctly, that was in Bangalore in 98. It's the only time he made it past 150 in test cricket but he was in hospital a couple of days before on a drip I think and then he came out and batted for the bulk of the Australian first innings he set it up and Michael Kaspervitz knocked them down and, and got Australia a, a win in that dead rubber but it was an important win because uh, they got flogged in the first couple of tests the 9-1-1 pledge that came through from someone's name being 9-1-1 we reckon that's Titch Friedman, 9 for 11 that he took in a first-class match, being the um, Titch the Friedman. innings figures. That's good stuff. Well, he, he comes up 
Okay, so Titch Freeman, 9 for 11. I reckon he's got another stat to his name at first-class level where he... I'm going to struggle to explain this, but it's the most amount of runs conceded for the fewest amount of wickets. So he had like, you know, a one for 400 or something like that at some point during his you know, illustrious first-class career. But I'm, I'm glad that he's getting a mention on the final where Titch Freeman, nine for 11. Good. You're right. We should have got that. But anyway, it's on the record that, now. That's sort of early, early 1900s, right? Yeah. His, his yep. kind of era. The 111 that we were speculating might be a veiled um, reference to Richard, Richard III. the 111th, <laughs> uh, played by Kevin Spacey, uh, as interpreted by Brett Lee. It was, in fact, the World Cup 100 made by John Davidson, the South Australian oh, spinner, and at one Victorian. point, Canadian opening batsman. <laughs> um, he, played for, he played for SA. He did play for well. both. He's a, he was a Victorian first and foremost, but he did end up at South Australia. I remember yeah. that night really well. I think that was perhaps the, my first week of proper university in 2003, where I, where mm-hmm. I actually had to go to class and whatnot. And, um, and, and John Davidson's 100, uh, on a Sunday night it was, sitting in my grandmother's living room and just thinking it was the most exciting thing of all time watching a Victorian <laughs> Sheffield Shield player make 100 in a World Cup. I, I thought that uh, subsequently, I've, I think I've talked about this on Twitter before, that that would have been, if, if there's one innings from the, the pre-social media era that I wish occurred now, it would be Davison's ton against the West Indies in yep. that World Cup because Twitter just would have exploded. It would have been a joyous experience for us all to have shared together rather than me with what was then my 84-year-old grandmother who didn't care an awful lot. <laughs> it, it, um, it grabbed the attention. I, th- I think from memory it was something like 66 balls maybe for that. Yeah, it, was, it was something ridiculous, um, yeah. It was near enough to the world. It wasn't quite the world record, but it was, you know, it was trending in that direction. And was it Vaspit Drakes who took the catch? I remember this one-handed catch <laughs> yeah. at Long On, a sort of ridiculous ju- leaping upwards and snaring uh, what should have been another six. Possibly. I, often, I reckon Mer- it might have been Vaspit. Yeah, Mervyn Dillon was certainly bowling. He might have been bowling when the wicket fell, but uh, yeah, a mighty innings and one that he wasn't ever able to quite replicate but it did make you wonder why when he played professional cricket in Australia he tended to bat down at eight or nine as you do as a, an off spinner as is the custom but but in Canadian circles he he batted up the list and yeah one of the great sort of pioneers of, of associate cricket when it was making its name in, in the 2003 World Cup I think he played in the 2007 World Cup as well if memory serves me correctly so what, that was when you know the ICC were on an expansionary mission there were um, 12 teams admitted in 96, 12 in 99, 14 in 2003, and then 16 in, in 2007. And the unintended consequence of what happened in 2007 when they stuffed the groups up and, and, and had four groups of four rather than two groups of eight was that uh, India bombed out after three games. And, and of course, we know the, the consequences of that are being felt uh, this year in 2019 because they've reduced the World Cup back to 10 teams to ensure that India get a minimum of nine games at the World Cup. But still, there, there was a time, and it wasn't that long ago, when, when decision makers at ICC headquarters were, were embracing associate nations and, and John Davison was a big part of that story. Well, let's have a- a couple of quick nerd pledge challenges for you, Adam. Uh, the first okay. picked out is largely due to the fantastic name of this particular oh, yeah. uh, pledger. Real Victor Trumper. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure about anyone with real in their handle because um, it usually guarantees they're not who That's they right. say they are unless they're, they're the current president of the US, yeah. in, in which case the name's a bit too close for comfort. But Real Victor Trumper has come through with a pledge of $2.44, which um, equates to two four four. So what does two forty four represent well, in cricket? It's not Victor Trumper's highest score, I can tell you that, because that's 214. Well, yeah, two forty four. we were there a couple of years ago, Jeff, when Alistair Cook carried his bat at the MCG, uh, the Boxing Day Test match. It wasn't an innings that 
will necessarily it didn't have a big influence on that game of cricket and and you know in one of the flattest no indeed the flattest track I've ever seen in test cricket but um, you still got to make him and it was a nice sort of I guess for him uh, a sign off for, for his kind of troubled checkered uh, last couple of series in Australia but nice to wind the clock back and remind people of what he was capable of doing in Australia you reckon that that's the link what, what's the link between why would a Victor Trumper fan be a, also an Alistair Cook fan they're a little bit yes, different in, in style are they not fashion incongruous well it, it might be that well okay here's my prediction so a lot of people from the the, the former Victor Trumper cricket board listen to this podcast which is a fairly nerdy haven <laughs> That I still see a few of the a few of the uh, boys and girls from to this day. But in the late nineties and early two thousands, this was where this is where the cool kids were hanging out, and uh, a lot of the Victor Trumper Cricket Board alumni are from the UK. So I'm going to take a punt that it's one of them. Um, there, there's plenty of them that would have been following Cookie closely. So I guess it's in big writing on the wall at the MCG. Yeah. <laughs> and remember, they two four four, and they got the font right between summers as well. You might recall Jeff that they put up a quite impromptu temporary temporary one there, and, and it wasn't the right. Font font which drove a lot of people crazy but it was fixed up by this year and it wasn't far away from Pat Cummins getting on there as well because Cummins this year uh, was on track to, to break who has the best Australian figures I should know this Maley? Oh, yeah, Arthur Maley. Of course it is. Arthur Maley at the MCG. But for about a heartbeat there, um, Pat Cummins looked like he was going to take nine wickets as well and uh, get his name up on the board and have two changes in two years, but it wasn't to be. And now I know that I said that I'll make jokes about people's names, but I'm not even going to go there for Andrew Lowcock. Andrew um, Lowcock, who's... A, too easy. He, 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 well, he's a, I know Andrew Lowcock, and he, he's one of the great five-a-side um, goalkeepers in futsal on a on a Sunday right. afternoon in Melbourne. He has been a, he was a, a loyal teammate of mine uh, for Benny Hill Unathletic. So thank Thank you for your patron subscription. And what number has he put next to it? 444 is what Andrew Lowcock has come through with. Please, please tell me that someone calls him Sweet Chariot. 44, yeah. That would be the perfect nickname. 444. The only thing that jumps out to me is not really a thing anymore, which is England made 444, and that was briefly the one-day world record, but they broke it when they made 481 at Trent Bridge last yeah. year. But that <laughs> could be it. Uh, that could be it. Oh, actually, let, let's. Um, whenever we aren't sure, we just consult the the test player lists and what number cap they wear. Australia's four hundred and forty fourth <laughs> test cricketer was John Holland. Four four four. So well, yeah, it would be recent, wouldn't it? He, that was uh, that was in the UAE that we no no it was in Holland Sri Lanka. Yeah, the last test match I didn't go to covering the Australian team. He he slots in between mm. Peter Neville, who was four forty three, so Neville debuted at Lords in twenty fifteen, and Callum Ferguson later yeah. that year. That was that disastrous test match Oof. at the Hobart where he um, where he got ran out in the first innings and it didn't end up much better in the second dig either from memory. He should not Stiff be a one hit wonder. Yeah, Callum Ferguson should have played more than one test match, but um, unfortunately it's linked with the the Hobart debacle, which really, in hindsight, doesn't feel like much of a debacle at all when you consider no. some of the things that have happened to Australian cricket since. So there's two nerd pleasures, but Jeff, let, let's keep some in the bank for later yep. this week when we do our more substantial episode between the two of us. But if you do want to get involved, as you say, patreon.com forward slash the final word where you can jump on and and, uh, and try and stump us. It's not hard to do. And that's spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N for some reason. What are we up to now? About 140 odd subscribers? Yeah, one, like one, 133, I think. Um, heading towards that Mark Wall Bloody amazing. Right? Yeah. Bloody amazing yeah. to have that many people come around in, in a community and say, yes, we want cricket podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and by God, we're the people to deliver it to you. We will throw ourselves into that breach week after week, month after month. 
possibly year after year. Well, it has been year after year, and, and, and in support of us year after year, of course, have been Cookaburra Cricket, who sponsor the final word. If it ain't Cooker, it ain't Cricket, of course. And, uh, Jeff, we, we had a Cookaburra arrival in England last week at the Oval, Dean Elgar. He, he obviously is playing for Surrey. He's their international, has been for a few years over here. I had a chat to him on the on the video version of the final word on the Wisdom website. He was on the way to England, expecting you have, you know, a couple of days to chill out, unpack the bags, you know, sleep off any jet lag and so on. But Alex Stewart, the, the, the czar mm. of cricket at Surrey, called him and said, mate, I'm, I'm afraid we want you to play immediately. So he got to London, came down to the Oval after, I think, a half a night's sleep or something like that and was playing in a Royal London One Day Cup game. The incredible power of the Elgar Scrolls. Yeah, and... and <laughs> And the uh, the other Kookaburra high-profile player last week was Peter Siddle. He just can't stop taking wickets. Picked up three against Middlesex and then four against Somerset. Picked up a couple against Glamorgan to start the one-day campaign. It was six against Surrey at the Oval the week before in the first-class game. Peter Siddle, I mean, you just can't keep the bloke down. No matter what format of the game it is, who he's playing for right now, he's making an absolutely compelling case to play some role in the Ashes later this summer, which is just a wonderful thing. Don't rule him out. We are not playing the rule-in, rule-out game, but we're particularly not playing the rule-out game. <laughs> we should get him on the pod at some point, Jeff. That's a good prompt. It'll be 10 years since he first played a, a test match in England in 2009, so if he was able to do it again in 2019, that'd be quite the story. But of course, he's one of just one of many Kookaburra cricketers who will be here this summer, including Usman Khawaja mm-hmm. and Elisa Healy and Tim Payne. They'll be using the Kahuna. Marcus Harris will almost certainly be here. Nathan Lyon, the Cole Bolton for the Women's Ashes She'll be using the Ghost. The Serge Silvani, Peter Hanscom, won't be here for the one days, but given he's got a national contract, we reckon he'll probably be here during the Ashes. Mitchell Stark and Sophie Molyneux, who was so well, he'll fantastic. He'll be in the A squad for the one days. He will, as right. So he'll, he'll, be, be, he'll be about. He'll be about. They'll all be using the Serge, the Serge Silvani, and, and the Blaze. Maxwell will be blazing away, as will Rachel Haynes and Josh Hazelwood, and I'm sure a few others as well. Imagine if Glenn Maxwell one day makes 420 with the Blaze. 420 with the Blaze is but it's kind of my dream come true stuff right there um that would be lush to go full circle that on this would be warren intro. lush <laughs> i always like it when there's a delayed tea break and we have to come back at 420 never lost upon <laughs> you and i that one <laughs> jeff we probably have said enough haven't we long story short thanks so much for the patreon subscriptions during the week a lot more coming uh, in our in our longer conversation but look sit back and enjoy this chat with ian chapel he's a cracker i really enjoy doing it we've been waiting a long time to release it out into the wild so uh, sit back relax and, and enjoy Australia's former test captain and such a prominent member of the Australian cricket community Ian Chappell Hi I'm Dave Warner and you're listening to The Final Word uh, Ian Chappell such a wonderful privilege to have you on The Final Word let's go back to the very start and where you started developing uh, your cricket and your interest in the game uh, talking to Greg your brother last year he made mention of the fact that around the kitchen table and the dinner table you needed fast hands there was never a, a piece of bread passed to you it would be thrown to you and, and those sorts of uh, those sorts of qualities around the around the house so cricket was obviously something that was uh, going to be part of your, your story yeah, it was it was all sports really. Yeah, well, when I say all sports, it was cricket, baseball, and football. And I've always said I, you know, I had an equal love for cricket and baseball. But very early on, Martin said, you know, we weren't to play with a tennis ball. It was all, always had to be a hard ball, so it was either cricket or baseball. Um, and 
you know, I don't remember so much about the bread rolls being tossed around, but you'd be walking around the house as a young kid and suddenly Martin would fire a cricket ball at you or a baseball at you. So, <laughs> you know, Bob, Bob Simpson at some stage rather claimed me as, a, you know, as one of his projects as a slip fielder. If Martin had been alive, he would have got on the first plane to Sydney and, uh, and he would have thumped Bob Simpson, and with good reason, um, because, you know, it's no surprise that the three of us were all good fielders because, you know, that was part of Martin's project. And, in fact, he, he had a grand plan. You know, I don't know what age I was, uh, but, you know, well, Trevor's nine years younger and he was around, so maybe I was... 15, 16, I don't know, something like that. And one day Martin said, uh, pointed at me and he said, you'll bat at three, pointed to Greg, he said, you'll bat four, pointed at Trevor and he said, you'll open. And he said, in the winter, you'll catch, pointing to me, uh, Greg, you'll play shortstop, Trevor, you'll pitch. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, that's pretty well how it worked out, except Trevor Trevor pitched as a young guy, but then he, he moved to shortstop as well. But, you know, I was a catcher, Greg was a shortstop, I batted three, Greg batted four, Trevor, you know, did his share of uh, opening the batting. So Martin, you know, had this grand plan for us. I think it's fairly well known that you played baseball as a family, perhaps not to the extent that you played sort of well beyond your cricketing career. You mean, you came back to baseball and played into, I mean, even into the century. I was actually selected for Australia at baseball before I was selected for Australia at cricket. Um, I played in Claxon Shield 64, 65, 66, and I was picked in the All-Australian side 64 and 66. The problem was in those days, unless there was a US Navy ship in town or maybe a Japanese ship or something like that, you didn't get to play against anyone. But 66, then I toured South Africa with the Australian side and, and I'd just got married and I thought, you know, um, uh, th- that's when I go baseball away. But... When I retired from cricket and came straight to Sydney, I, I thought, geez, I, you know, I really love playing baseball and I've missed all those years. So I went back and started playing again and um, it was a bit on and off, but I, I actually played my last game of Masters Baseball at 58, still catching, um, <laughs> but my knees are paying for it now. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever thought that had, had you been maybe uh, 20 or 30 years later on that, that you may have ended up being a professional baseballer rather, rather than going ahead and playing cricket for Australia? Well, it, I, you know, I've said that I had this equal love for both games yeah, yeah. and... Um, I don't know what age I was, probably, I don't know, probably just teenage years, maybe 11, 12, somewhere around there. But I used to get the baseball on Armed Forces Radio, so I'd listen to the baseball, and obviously I got pretty excited about the baseball that night, and I'm, I did a very dangerous thing. I walked into my parents' bedroom at midnight, and um, I sit, said to Martin, uh, Martin, I'm going to, you know, when I'm old enough, I'm going to America to play baseball. And he said, piss off back to bed, son, uh, you're going to play cricket, you know. And, uh, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to know. But there was no pathway then, so it, I didn't ever have to make the decision. So Martin's plan about where you're playing and who's batting where and all of that, was that for any cricket team or was he saying that would be for Australia? Oh, no. I mean, I, I never thought about playing for Australia probably until I'd had maybe in the third or fourth Sheffield Shield season, you know. Uh, so I, I don't think Australia was ever mentioned. It was just, no, that was just where I'd bat. Um, that was your batting position. And, um, yeah, I remember Richie Benno wrote, uh, oh, I think he, uh, a foreword to uh, the first book that I wrote. And 
he wrote in there, I think it was there, he said, oh, Ian was forced to bat at number three. And I said to him later, Rich, I wasn't forced. I, you know, I grew up wanting to be a number three batsman. I mean, Bob Simpson wanted in 66-7, he tried to make me into a, you know, a middle-order batsman who bowled leg spin, which, you know, I quite like bowling, but I like bowling as a part-time, as a change bowler. You know, the other day, uh, Michael Hussey was, when the game was on in Sydney, and Labuschagne came on and he said, oh, what he's got to do now, he's got to bowl tight and not give any runs away and build up the pressure, you know. I, f- I felt like saying, bollocks he does, Huss. You know, cause, I mean, I, because I bowled as a part-timer and your idea is bowl as much variety as you can, try and get a wicket, and then you know you'll be taken off and the, one of the good blokes <laughs> will come on. But, you know, that's how I like to bowl. Uh, Simpson had me bowling, you know, lots of overs early in that tour and the interesting thing was as soon as I got back to South Australia Les Favell who was quite straightforward about most things he said uh, Jesus Christ son he said uh, you might have been bowling 30 overs for Australia he said but there won't be any of that for South Australia you'll be bowling five or six overs get me a wicket and then you're off you know <laughs> and I felt like saying that's great Les that's how I you know like to to bowl and bat at number three you were pushed down the order as well at that point when you were sort of shades of Steve Smith you were at the times you were coming in at seven and bowling leg spin oh well it was my first I actually my first test I batted three and then but it was a one-off test and then I mm. missed out for a while and then when I came into the Australian side against England I think I batted six and I might have batted seven once in South Africa I think but mm. the general idea I think he I think Simpson's idea was that I batted at six and uh, and bowled. but we had a few at that stage you had uh, Stacky, Tom Vivers and myself and we sort of you know we were all five six and seven around that area and 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 bowled quite a bit. Um, I remember Greg, uh, one day at the Adelaide Oval, this was South Australia, and uh, I took him off after, I don't know whether he'd got a wicket or not, but I took him off after four overs, and he's come to second and said, Jesus Christ, how do you expect me to get wickets when you only bowl me for four overs? And I said, mate, you better find a way, because you're a number four batsman, you're in this team to get hundreds, and I'm not going to do anything that's going to detract from you making hundreds, i.e. bowl you for long spells. So... And I said, and by the way, if you do get a wicket in the four overs, you'll be off anyhow, <laughs> which which didn't improve his sense of humour much. <laughs> so, so Martin's his towering influence, but also your grandfather, Victor Richardson. He would have seen a, a decent portion of your, your test career early on in any case. What sort of influence did he have on you coming through school and your early days of grade cricket and early days at South Australia? Vic said very early on, you've got a coach, I'm not going to coach you. So he there was no coaching. I think he uh, when Trevor was born and Gene was in hospital, Greg stayed at Vic's place and Vic cleared, I didn't, I didn't even know he had it, he had a tennis court by the side of his house but I didn't even know he had a, a sort of a pitch in his backyard and he, but because it, it was all this jungle over it, he cleared it out and started throwing balls to Greg but I don't think even with Greg that he did much coaching but he was, uh, he was very encouraging um, he didn't like speaking on the phone you know, if you rang him if he happened to answer the phone, which he wouldn't do very often, if he happened to answer the phone, he'd say, uh, you wishing speaks with me? And um, uh, But then if, uh, like Gene would be talking, and I, uh, you'd work out that he was talking to Vic, and um, and Gene would hand the phone over and say, oh, Vic wants to say something, and he'd say, well played today, and boom, down the phone would go. He, he, you know, he didn't like having long conversations on the phone. 
But he was, it was very encouraging. And, and Gene would often say to me, oh, did you see Vic at the cricket today? And I'd say, no, I didn't see him. Oh, he was, he parked over behind the trees and he stood behind a tree, you know, so... Um, so he was incognito. He didn't, yes, he didn't know he was there. Yeah, I think mainly because he didn't want to put any extra pressure on me. Um, but he was, he told me a few things, uh, things like, if you can't be a good cricketer, at least you can look like one. Well, I think that escaped me and... <laughs> I think Greg got that vibe. He said uh, he told me about uh, batting first as a you know winning the toss, and and that was a pretty obvious thing for a captain who captained during um, uh, the, uh, uncovered wickets. He he just said uh, nine times out of ten you bat when you win the toss. The tenth time you think about sending the opposition in, and then you bat first anyhow. <laughs> that was another thing. And then he he said um, uh, if you. Uh, and I'm, I can't remember whether I was vice-captain at this stage or not. I don't think I'd quite got to that point. But he, he said, if you get the chance to captain Australia, don't captain like a Victorian. Um, and I, for some reason or other, I, I didn't take it as a shot at Bill. Um, and I spoke to a couple of, you know, like McGilvray and Fingleton and older blokes who knew Vic pretty yep. well. And they thought it was... And I don't think it would have been Woodful either because he had a, you know... He, he told me quite a few things about body line and uh, I could tell that he had a great respect for Woodfull. Mm-hmm. So uh, a couple of the older guys, McGilvray probably, Fingled and, and maybe Tiger O'Reilly, I think they felt it was perhaps Hassett that he was referring to, but he didn't actually use a name. How did you interpret that, the idea of captaining like a Victorian? What sort of traits were the, were the Victorian captains uh, exhibiting? <laughs> well, I mean, the problem... I, I, I learned a lot about captaincy from Bill. Um, right. And I thought he was a good captain. You know, the runs that I got in Shield cricket against Victoria when Bill was captain, they were the hardest runs to get. You know, because he always put the field where you where you hit the ball. Um, uh, I, I thought he was a far better captain than Simpson, for instance, because Bill was always trying to make things happen. Um, whereas I felt that Simpson let the game roll on a bit. But Bill, especially in the latter part of his captaincy reign, he. He wanted to get into a position where you couldn't lose before he start trying to win, which is a crap way to play cricket in my book. And mm. you know, I uh, I always thought you you had to try and win from ball number one, and then if you got if you got into trouble, then you only had one other option that was try and draw it. Um, so you know, all, but all the influences I had, you know, Vic obviously was a, an aggressive captain, and 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 I heard a lot about him from Fingleton and O'Reilly, who toured. Uh, South Africa with him yep. or under him in 35-6 um, and then Les was a very aggressive um, captain and I, you know, I played all my shield cricket other than when I captained I played under Les and then probably the, the other lucky break I got was um, when I started captain the school team uh, at 16 years of age that was the same time as Richie took over the captaincy of Australia you know 58-59 mm-hmm. and because I you know at school I you know obviously I bowled a lot more at school than I did later on but you know I was a number three batsman but I bowled a lot and and because Richie was a boy well, he was more a leg spinner who batted uh, but I really liked the way Richie captained the side uh, I thought it was enterprising and 
you know, I liked the enthusiasm that he brought to the captaincy. So that, you know, that had a big influence on me. Unfortunately, his idea of leaving his shirt open had a big influence on me. And I've been, <laughs> I've been getting bloody skin cancers cut out, burnt out and uh, everything else for the last 30 odd years. Is it interesting to you that that sort of, it still plays out that um, that battle between styles. You have someone like Ricky Ponting was quite a defensive captain. Michael Clark comes in and replaces him as a very aggressive captain who's willing to take risks to lose in order to win? Yeah, I mean, I think of of all the captains, you know, of all the recent captains, I think Mark Taylor was the best. Um, both strategy, tactics and and leadership, which is... Because there's two parts to captaincy. There's the captaincy on the field, which is, you know, if you've got a half-decent cricket knowledge, it's not, you know, it's common sense. Uh, field placings and bowling changes and so on. But then there's the leadership part, which is after hours. And, I mean, that's, that's probably the hardest work of the lot. Well, not, not the hardest work, but it, to me, the work that you do there, you reap the rewards on the field. And I think that's where Michael Clark. I think Michael Clark was the equal of Mark Taylor, uh, strategy and tactics-wise, but I don't think he was the equal... Well, I, you know, that was his problem, was off the mm. field, I think, whereas Mark was a good leader as well as a good captain. Um, Ricky... Uh, you know, Ricky cops a bit as a captain. The, the the only disappointing thing for me about Ricky's captaincy was, you know, his nickname's Punter, uh, and he didn't take his gambling instincts onto the field with mm. him. I, I wish he had of, you know, because, um, you know, I think he... The thing about, you know, I've always placed uh, Ricky ahead of Steve Waugh as a captain because whether you agreed with Ricky's ideas or not, he never ran out of ideas. But I saw Steve Waugh on the on the odd occasion that Steve Waugh was under the hammer, he ran out of ideas pretty quickly. But it's a very subjective thing, you know. I mean, field placings and bowling chains, they're very subjective. And... Yeah, Ponting's record uh, while in the period when he had McGrath and Warren, his record was better than Steve Waugh's. Uh, it was only after he lost McGrath and Warren that uh, mm. it, it came back to the field a bit. But And, th- and I mean, that's going to happen if you lose two bowlers like that. I've heard you talk before, Ian, about the importance of having uh, the ability as a captain and as a leader to corral and people bring people with you that if someone has the ability to make runs or take wickets and be a match winner, that your job as captain was to find find a way to make them fit, not the other way around, not to just pick players who already necessarily fitted into the dressing room. You had, to, had that broader responsibility. Well, it's, it's common sense, really, because you know, the, once you realise that all the Ws and all the Ls are going to go against your name as a captain, <laughs> then I think you've got a chance of being a good captain once you understand that, because that should mean that, that you then pick the best possible side. You're not worried about whether you like blokes or you dislike blokes. That should never come into selection. you only got to ask one question. If it's a batsman, can he get me 100 runs? If it's a bowler, can he get me five wickets? If the answer to those questions is yes, the guy's in the team. Now, as a captain, it's my, if, he, you know, if he's a bit of an awkward customer, it's my job to, to make it work. And I'm going to do everything, and I'm going to let the guy know. Um, you know, I'm going to say, mate, I want you in this team, but there's a few issues. Let's meet halfway and we'll sort this thing out. And I'll, I'll do everything I possibly can be- before I'll cut him loose. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, when I wrote when... Um, <clears throat> 
Kevin Peterson was sacked from England, that basically he was sacked because he disagreed with uh, Alastair Cook's captaincy. I said they've got it the wrong way around. They should have sacked everyone who agreed with Cook's captaincy <laughs> and kept the blokes who disagreed with it because he was a bloody awful captain, Alastair. Yeah, I mean, he's probably a lovely bloke and he, he's, you know, been a fine batsman in his time. But And he wasn't a natural captain. And I, and I think anybody who... You've got to be, when you're picking a captain, one of the first things you've got to do is pick a guy who's going to be buoyed by the responsibility, not weighed down by it. Mm. And I think the responsibility, I mean, not just Cook, I've seen others, but I think Cook was weighed down by the responsibility. He wasn't a natural captain. And I mean, how can you have the opposition, if it wasn't all five tests, it was four of the five, he had Australia five down for less than 150 in mm. the first innings and they lost 5-0. You can't do that. I mean, you, if you've got the opposition five for less than 150 in the first innings, you've got to win three of the five, surely. You know, it's, it's important um, with, with the personality. See, uh, Michael Clark, uh, Mark Taylor, they were guys who were buoyed by the responsibility and, you know, uh, I mean, Ponting, Ponting was buoyed by the responsibility. He, his record as a as a captain, you know, his batting record. Most of the guys who are buoyed by the responsibility, their their record, what are they whatever they do, batting or bowling, usually goes up. You see it with um, Smith in that his batting numbers went through the roof when he yeah. became captain, but what you talked about, he didn't seem to relish the responsibility of actually leading the side. And and, uh, and then you have a player like David Warner where he's got the Kevin Petersons about him where a lot of people say, well, he's too difficult and he shouldn't be in the team because he can't fit as a personality. What do you make of that whole situation? Well, it depends who's making the statements. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who make the statements that don't know shit about cricket um, so I don't take any notice of them and anybody who says Warner's too difficult I, I mean I, I'm not in the dressing room I don't know but the bit I've had to do with David Warner what I would say about David Warner is I think he would have been a better captain than Steve Smith because he's got a very good understanding of the game of cricket it, it's a very aggressive understanding of the game of cricket I've I've spoken with him and he's talked about batting, uh, batting in general and his own batting and he's got a terrific understanding of batting and and his own batting. Um, He did a bit of commentary with Channel 9 and I had a chance Mm. to chat with him off air and terrific uh, understanding of the game. Now, you know, if if he is a bit difficult, well, mate, if you've got a guy who can get 100 in the first two hours of a test match, why wouldn't you want him in the team? I mean, you do everything you possibly can. Again, if he makes life so difficult, in the end, you've you've got to cut him loose. But boy, I'd be... You know, I'd be cutting him a lot of slack before I cut him loose. I remember listening to you as a kid, Ian, talk about batting as though it was such a simple craft. So there was this old Cricket Academy coaching tape I used to wear out listening, talking about you go, there's only two decisions to make, forward or back, yeah. um, defend or attack. Yeah. A lot of people wouldn't have seen you bat who are listening to this podcast and who watch you on TV or, or radio due to the fact that your career ended, you know, 35, 40 years ago. Does that surmise your cricket really well, your batting side of your game, and that you kept it extremely simple? I tried to, but I mean, like all cricketers, you'll, especially when you're struggling a bit, you tend to, that's when you do complicate it a bit. And mm. and then you uh, hopefully eventually get, grab a brain and say, listen, mate, just do nothing else but just watch the ball out yeah. of the bowler's hand. And that'll, yeah, I mean, that makes all your decisions for you, you know, uh, because that's where you pick up the line, obviously, and the length of the ball, watching it out of the bowler's hand. Um, and when you hear, 
commentators talk about a batsman, you know, the better players, oh, they've got so much time. That purely comes from watching the ball out of the bowler's hand. I remember, I think we were in Sharjah um, or Dubai, um, and we were sitting around and some guy said to Gary Sobers uh, oh how did, how did you face 90 mile an hour fast bowling that must have been bloody difficult and Gary said to him oh mate he said mate when you know when you, the guy lets it go from there it's a Yorker and when he lets it go from there it's a bouncer and the bloke looked at me and I said well he's right but it's not quite as, as simple as that <laughs> but you and you're not yeah, you're not telling yourself to watch the ball out of the bowler's hand all the time. It's just you do it so so much. But there are times when you think you are and you're obviously you're watching in a bit of an area. So going back to the simple bit, uh, I mean, Richie told me when I was probably about nine, I was playing shield cricket, so about 19 probably, uh, he said, Ian, this is a very simple game. The simpler you keep it, the better off you'll be. And... Yeah, like everything else that Richie's ever told me, it was very wise words. Um, and I, I think I got that approach, you know, the old man, um, Martin, and uh, the coach, Lynn Fuller. It, it wasn't what they were telling us wasn't complicated. It was, you know, it was basically keep it simple. You know, in, I mean, you can boil batting down even further. Um, it, you know, people talk about technique. They jump up and down about technique. But I also... Technique is the ability to stop the good ones and score off the rest of them, mm. you know. And, and as, long as, you're, as long as you're watching the ball out of the bowler's hand and you've got foremost in your mind scoring runs you'll be okay because that means you're thinking positively and when you're thinking positively that's when the feet move well it's when you get into a negative frame of mind that's when the feet stop moving so well and you get into trouble after the elevation to number three in 68 69 you have a massive summer you made obviously 400s in the in the world 11 games a few years after that but um, i'm curious as to what your your favorite innings was or when you felt like you were batting better than any other time greg nominates lords done s 72 for him as when he never felt he better than he better um do you sort of look back now and reflect on one day when it just felt better than any other time jack bannister did a book on the innings of their life it was called and jack was uh, he played for warwickshire mm. quite a decent cricketer and worked for the bbc uh, i think probably both radio and television but he was also a written journalist and now he did this book and greg and i picked the same game i picked lords in 72 as well oh, really? for, for me yeah but it wasn't because that was the innings that was things came the easiest it was all the things that happened around it the, the bob massey game of course as well yeah but See, the first test, uh, I came into the... Uh, I'd gone through a patch. Um, Bob Simpson stupidly told me to give up hooking. Uh, Simo was... As, as a coach, Simo was... <laughs> if you didn't bat like him, you know, you weren't any good, basically. Um, and he said, Ian... This is on the South African tour in 66-7. He said, Ian, uh, give up hooking, mate. He said, oh, you've got enough shots, you'll score enough runs without hooking. I gave up hooking and, you know, it was the best thing I ever did. I didn't actually give up hooking, but worse still, I got into a will I or won't I frame of mind, which is a bloody worst, the worst possible place to be. And it sort of really caused, started to cause me problems 70-71 when Snowy bowled so well to mm. us. And in that in that series, I realised I was in a bit of trouble. And but I thought, you know, I can't change things mid-series. So at the end of that series, Greg and I spent three months um, where I lived, just across the road, was Plimpton High School in Adelaide, and they had uh, a couple of cement pitches. Uh, 
practice pitches. And we obviously had a lot of baseballs around home and, and they, they bounce a bit more than the, the cricket balls. And so Greg and I, for three months, we would just run up and all shorter than the full 22 yards and we both threw and, you know, we were both baseballers so we had good arms and ac- the, the important thing is accurate arms. And we just fired bounces at each other for these three months and, you know, and I sorted things out. But having said that I sorted things out, I, w- I still had to do it in a game to convince myself that, yes, it was sorted out. It's fine to do it in the Plimpton High Nets, but you know, <laughs> up against Jon Snow in a test match, that's a different kettle of fish. Anyhow, we, we get the 72-2, tour, we get to Old Trafford. Stacky and, and uh, Bruce Francis get dropped three times in, in the space of a few balls. And then... Uh, probably uh, Bruce Francis I think got out one for 69 I come in Greggy's bowling first ball bounce it's the best hook shot I've ever hit in my life I, I, I didn't I meant to hit it down but I just hit it so well it carried right to the boundary bloody um, Mike Smith had his heels on the ropes and you know full stretch above his head and he caught the bloody thing first ball so I'm out for a duck hooking you see and then in in the second innings the pitch had had been doing everything it was seeming all over the place and about late on the fourth day it started to settle down and I never used to talk to my batting partner I didn't see the point um but I, I, I thought, you know, this track has really settled down now. So I went down to Stacky, and I can't remember what the score was, but I, we, and we were chasing about 350. And I said, Stack, if we're here at Stumps, we'll get these. And promptly I got out next over, uh, hooking again. But I went to hook Snowy, and it hit the peak of my cap. And so, you know, how you swivel around and you come... And I'm facing the umpire, and the bloody peak of my cap's over here, which should have been a bit of a clue. Silly old bloody Tommy Spencer gives me out. So I'm out hooking both innings, naught and seven, and everyone's telling me to give up hooking, including my grandmother, not on Vic's side, on the, on the chapel side. She writes me a bloody blue airgram saying, oh, darling, everyone's saying you should give up hooking. <laughs> and I, th- that, I mean, that was enough. I thought, you know, she knows shit about cricket, and so I'm, I'm going to hook. So right, I'm... Then I go to practice the day before the test at Lords, and I, Jeff Hammond, because I knew Jeff well because he played for South Australia, mm-hmm. and he was a very accurate bowler. And, and I used to get him to bounce me in the nets a bit in Adelaide. I said, Bomber, give me a workout. So I'm batting, and the crowd, you know, the crowd behind the nets are pretty close, and they're, oh, yeah, even your bloody own players are bouncing, you know, all this crap's going on, you see. So anyway, we, we bowl them out for whatever, 275 or somewhere around there. So I'm sitting waiting to go in at Lord's number three and Kenny Barrington walks into the Australian dressing room, you see. Kenny Barrington played a lot of test matches for England, one of the hardest batsmen to get out of mm. all time. He sits down next to me and he says, oh, Ian, maybe you should think about not hooking until you're 50, you see. And, uh, yeah, thanks, Kenny. And then he leaves and I thought, right, that's it. You know, now I've got a bloody Englishman <laughs> telling me to give up hooking. I am hooking. So I went out there. So all this has been going on and... They did me, England did me one favour. Snowy, and apparently Snowy liked bowling from the nursery end for some reason. I don't know why. I mean, he, he would have been a nightmare coming from the bloody pavilion end. But anyway, he, and they bowled uh, John Price from the pavilion end, and John Price bounced the shit out of me. I got 56, I reckon, yeah, there was something like 10 fours and a six, and they, they were all hook shots. And I eventually <laughs> did get out hooking, but it was, it was a very important innings because we'd lost an early wicket. And, you know, I've always been a believer that you've got to have someone up the top of the order who takes on the short stuff. 
because that can put an end to the short stuff in a real big hurry. Now, we were lucky. We had Stacky and then myself at the top of the order who took it on. But I just thought that it was having lost the first test, me having got out twice hooking, it was a statement as much for the team as it was for me. Um, mm. And that's why I've always classed that as not one of my best innings, but one of the most important that I played. It does sound like a you know, st- certain stubbornness is part of your makeup uh, in that and other things. Well, you know, again, I've said with coaching, you, you've got to take personality into account with coaching. That, that's what Simpson didn't do. You know, I mean, it's no good telling Jeff Boycott that he's got to go out and take on the fast balls and hook everything because that's not his nature. The same as it's no good telling me that I've got to bob and weave and avoid bounces because that's not my nature. You know, my, my nature is, well, stuff you, mate. You think you're going to give me a problem, I'll try and give you a problem, you know. Um, what did the Welsh rugby coach say? Um, Boys, get your retaliation in first. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that sort of, you know, that reflects here. It's reflected in uh, what you're talking about, about your captaincy in terms of making, you know, letting players be who they are and sort of develop the best version of them, not a version of what you want them to be. Yeah, see, one of the one of the other things that I thought was so good about Mark Taylor's captaincy was that he he realised what his assets were and he used them wisely. You know, he had he had some very aggressive batsmen, you know, Michael Slater, Mark War, Ricky Ponting, those guys, and he let them play aggressively. Uh, Alan was Alan was a bit more of a pessimist, and uh, you know, I think there was always a feeling that oh, you know, crikey, there's a disaster just around the corner. Um, you know, when for instance. And, and I think the players need to know what you're expecting of them. Um, I mean, obviously, if they're batsmen, you're expecting runs, and if they're bowlers, you're expecting wickets. But as an example, um, you know, the first thing I said to Doug when I took over the captaincy was, mate, you'll never get a kick up the bum from me if you get out playing shots. And the reason I said that was because I didn't want him to, you know, I mean, Doug's one of Doug's great assets was that he would come into bat with us in trouble and the opposition would be thinking, oh, you know, he's going to try and work his way out of this. No, Doug would counter-attack and the number of times he won games for us because he did exactly that. But I didn't want him sort of getting halfway into a shot, oh, you know, I better not... And, and that's when you are going to nick the thing. Now, if, if, he, if he nicks it, that's fine. You know, as I said... As I, said about David Hooks, you know, people say, oh, Hooks, you know, that's stupid. I said, mate, you can't have the good without the bad. Mm. You know, you're happy when Hooksy smashes everything out of sight, but when he hits one up in the air, oh, no, you shouldn't do that, David. Well, you know, Mm. as a captain, you've just got to take a deep breath and suck it up when that happens. But the other thing I did was I put uh, Ross Edwards at five on purpose between Greg and Doug Walters. And, And I went to Roscoe and I said, Roscoe, you know, I've put you between Greg and Doug. They're two stroke makers. One thing I ask is that they get plenty of strike. I said the one thing that can get them out is if they don't see the strike for a while because they both like to be getting on with it. And and Roscoe was perfect because he was a terrific runner between wickets and he loved to just nudge the ball around. And I said, Roscoe, you get 50. While you're getting 50, we'll get 150 with those two at the other end. And the other reason for telling blokes what you're expecting from them is if they go in there in a pressure situation let's say, you know, that's it's three for shit or four for shit, they go in, they think, oh, you know, if I get out now, we're really in trouble. If they're thinking, oh, they probably will get out. It, whereas if they think, well, 
what's he expects me to just push the ball around and give Dougie strike or give Greg strike? He, he's that's some positive thought that he's got in his mind. This is what I've got to do. You know, I've always said, you give me ten competitors and I'll take my chances with anybody. You know, if you and and then the other thing is with captaincy, if you've got. L- 10 other guys, whether they like you or they don't like you, one, if they respect you and they want to play for you, you can make some shit decisions, but if they really they really want to play for you, sometimes they'll make them work. I remember when Lynn Marks played for New South Wales and then he came and played one season for South Australia. And Lynn, and Lynn played for the same club as me, Glenelg, and we roomed together in the, in, on the state tours. And I said to Marksy one day, I said, what makes Richie Benno great cap, such a great captain? And he said, well, mate, he said, Rich will be standing there in the gully with his arms folded and uh, he said it'll be none for 200 and suddenly Rich will change the bowler and he'll just move a fieldsman here and he'll move another fieldsman there just quietly like that, you see. It looks like he's got everything under control even though it's none for 200. And he said... and. And the players, they think, ah, oh, this is the move that's going to change it all. And, and because they're thinking that, <laughs> quite often it does change the damn thing. But to me, the important thing that he told me was how Richie, you know, it didn't matter what was going on. Richie just stood in the gully and if you looked at him, you didn't know whether you were up or you were down. And that always, I've always said as a captain, you've got to even out your emotions because if you go up, they'll come up with you. But equally, if you get down, they'll come down with you as well. So having observed all these captains and, and played under um, Bill Laurie, uh, he loses the captaincy and then not long after you're, you're, in the, you're in the top job. You're an agitator as captain. You're someone who, who took it to the board and stuck it to the administrators. And in 72, 73, you were the one going after them about pay. You said you know, they'd never get you the way they got Bill in 1970 as well. I guess it's a threshold question to start a discussion about your, your period as a leader. Could someone like you exist in an era like this we are today, or, or were you really of your time? Oh, I was of my time, but, I mean, if I was given the... Cap- and I was only said this in the bar last night in Canberra. To, I can't remember who was there now, but uh, Alan Border, I think, was one of them. I said, if, if I was offered the captaincy now, I'd say, right, these are my terms. You mm. know, I, I don't want a coach. I don't want 7,500 Nork slippers, which is Yiddish for hangers-on. <laughs> um, and, you know, this is what I want. Now, if you want me as cap- captain, that's they're the rules if you're not prepared to give me that then give the captains here to somebody else and I say that um, when when the Argus review came up you know they asked me to come in and uh, uh, when I sat down they said uh, anything you want to say before we ask you some questions and I said yeah and I deliberately threw a hand grenade in um, probably because I like annoying administrators anyhow <laughs> um, but I said if you've got a system that produces a lot of good competitive young cricketers and a few strong leaders and you let them play and you let them lead, I said the rest will pretty well take care of itself. I think Michael Clark was captain at the time, but I said Michael Clark can't captain Australia properly, which was the hand grenade. And what do you mean? And I said, well, at least when I was captain, I only had one bloke to told it fuck off you know Mm. and that was the manager if he stuck his nose into the cricket side of the business you'd tell him to you know let us know what time the cabs are what day the official functions are make sure the boys get their checks leave the rest to us and we'll be fine but I said you know Michael Clark's got all these people you can't tell that many people to piss off 
And, and so what did they do? They put another layer of bloody management in there, you know, with Pat Howe. So I, I did say, in fact, you know, when I was told uh, Alan Shiel uh, rang mm. me, I was having lunch in the Overway Hotel in Hindley Street, um, um, and uh, the, some of the bloke said, uh, there's a phone call for you. I went and answered the phone, and it was Sheffield. He said, congratulations, mate. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, you're captain of Australia. And I'll never forget. I said, shit, you're joking. And my first thoughts were, Christ, I've been given a hell of a job here because we hadn't, I think we'd gone about 10 tests without winning one. And then I stopped and I thought about it a bit more and I thought, well, you know, we haven't been winning under Bill. So if we keep not winning under me, no one will, you know, they'll just say, well, it's an impossible job. But if I happen to win a test fairly quickly maybe they'll think I'm a genius uh, but, but at least it'll keep me in, it'll keep me in the job for a while so I promptly then lost the first two that I captained but you know what I did you know I wrote down uh, the three captains I'd played under Simpson and Laurie for Australia Les Favell for South Australia I, I wrote down all the things I liked about their captaincy all the things I didn't like about it and I tried to do the things that I liked and I tried to not do the things that I didn't like and then I tried to put my own stamp on the job um, the problems with the board had really the first I became aware of it was really Bob Cowper in 68 at the, at the team dinner. I don't think Cowps had told us that he was going to retire, but we were having drinks in the bar at the Waldorf before the dinner, and Cowps said, right, you buggers, nobody speak before me. And Bob Parrish was the manager, and Bob was... Well, he was certainly well up on the board. I don't know if... I don't think he was chairman at that stage, but anyhow, he was well up on the board. And, and Cowps just gave them both barrels at the, at the team dinner that night so that was a sort of a bit of a but at that stage I was just trying to hang on to my place in the team it really started to gain momentum in 69-70 in India South Africa mm. India it really blew up there were a couple of things um, I think it might have been Redder discovered that we if one of us died on the tour our wives were going to get it was either $400 or $1200 then Bradman was asked back in Australia why Greg Chappell wasn't on the tour and he said, oh, he's better off back in Australia making runs in shield cricket and not getting crook in India. And when we when this came to us, we all thought, well, so it doesn't matter if we get crook, you know. So there were things were building up and then we were in Guwahati and Guwahati was horrible and it really blew up. We had a team-only meeting and it all blew up and all these things started coming out. And that's when I said to Bill... Bill said, right, I'm going to write a letter to the board and I'm going to put all these points down. And I went to him after the meeting and I said, Bill, we all think, you know, these things. It's not just you. We all should sign the letter. I said, because if you just sign it on your own, I said, mate, as soon as you fail three times, they'll get rid of you. Anyhow, Bill signed it on his own, sent it off, and guess what happened, you know. Mm. So, and then we had, we had another big blow-up in South Africa when they wanted to play the fifth test. So it, it had been... It was building from there. And you say I was an agitator. I think... I'm not going to suggest for a moment that I didn't enjoy, you know, telling them that, that I thought they were dickheads sometimes when, <laughs> when I felt that they were dickheads. But... <laughs> A, a big reason 
for me fighting for the players. One, we didn't have a players association. But I always felt that they were giving me 100% on the field. So I thought it, it was my responsibility to give them 100% off the field if, if there were problems. And, uh, you know, there were Dennis in particular was getting really agitated. Um, 74-5, he, I, I wrote one column before the start of the Ashes series, just saying that I wasn't happy with, uh, you know, pay and conditions. But Dennis wrote about, well, he wrote a few with Tom Pryor. Tom Pryor was his ghostwriter. And Tim Caldwell was the president, and Tim came to me and he said, uh, you better tell your fast bowler to back off uh, with his columns. And I said, Tim, why don't you go and tell him yourself, because I happen to agree with him. And I don't know whether Dennis heard any more about it, but they... Uh, yeah, so, you know, it was really building, but by 74-5. And then at the end of that series, and that's when, it, you know, I mean, this is how stupid I was, certainly uh, probably other cricketers as well. They made an announcement at the end of the MCG tests and said that the gate takings were a quarter of a million dollars. And I thought, Jesus, that's good. And then I thought, hang on. And we're getting $200 a test. That's 12 times 2. That's $2,400. OK, England have got to get some. Who knows what that might be? But there's a hell of a lot left over. And that's when it really started to dawn on me. You know? And then at the end of that series, they gave us $200 a test bonus. So, in other words, if you played the six tests, you got 2400 instead of 1200 you know? But, I mean, England 72 that was a five-and-a-half-month tour. Yep. We got 2300 Australian dollars. Now, I was OK because I was getting paid from WDNHO Wills. Stacky was getting paid from Rothmans. Greg, I think, was getting paid. Tabsy would have been getting paid because he was with Rothmans. So there were about four of us, probably, who were OK. We were getting paid. So, we, you know, our wives could live on the money back home and we could live on the money in England. But like Roscoe, Ross Edwards... He wasn't getting paid any pay from work, so he had to live with a couple of kids back home. He had to, you know, send money home. It was, so it was, you know, it had got to that point where, like, I mean, Ian Redpath couldn't go on the 75 tour of England. I, you know, and, and we, Redder was a damn fine player, and, you know, and he was also a revered part of the team. You know, everybody loved Redder. And he, and he played like hell for Australia, and Redder would give everything. And so I went to um, Ray Steele and I said, Ray, Red can't leave his uh, antique shop and go to England. Uh, and I'd spoken to Redder about it. I said, mate, uh, have you got anyone who could run the shop for you? He said, yeah, I've got an old bloke who's quite happy to do it. I said, what's it going to cost? I'd tell you exactly what it 40 bucks a week it was going to cost. Mm. And I, so I went to Ray and I said, Ray, you know, it's only 40 bucks a week, mate. Can't the board just give him 40 bucks so he can pay this bloke and he comes on the tour with us? Oh, no, we can't do that. I said, why not? Oh, it'll set a precedent. I said, it's not going to set a precedent, Ray. I said, you'll know, I'll know, I'm not going to tell anyone, you don't tell anyone, there's no precedent. No. Or it'll set a really good precedent of looking (laughs) after your players. (laughs) Well, it could have, yeah, yeah. This animosity which was sort of bubbling up in the early 70s under your tutelage if they had have paid more attention to what you were saying then um, could the bitterness that helped contribute to the, the split in 1977 been partially avoided I know it wasn't just about money but had they been more mindful of what you were saying as Australian captain could have you found a negotiated peace before you did I don't think that was ever going to happen because Bradman 
it was like Bradman treated it as though it was his own money and he was never going to give us more. I, I found that out on a couple of occasions. But then uh, there was... Uh, I'd had two, I think maybe three, but I can re- definitely re- recall two approaches about playing professional, a professional troop. And they were going to do it outside the international calendar, so they weren't going to try and disrupt mm. uh, test cricket or international cricket. And when we had the meetings, I said to them, look, you've got to go to the boards because one was an Australian approach and then and there was another one during the 75 World Cup in London. That was some Indian businessmen. Uh, Bish and Beatty came to me and said, Ian, you know, we've got these couple of guys who want to have a professional troop. Uh, and I said, fine, I'll come along, Bish. I think Lloydie was there. But I said, I'll bring Greg because I'm, I don't think I'm going to last much longer as a captain, you know. Yep, that's fine. And both with both those approaches, I said, look, you've got to speak to the boards because they got the cricket grounds. And without the cricket grounds, you're stuffed. And they went and, and the boards told them to piss off. Then we played... At, uh, Greg and I played, I think, three years in a row, probably 72, 73, 74, a double-wicket competition in South Africa. And the first year, it was very successful. We, I think we got 400 rond for... You know, we were there for, I don't know, three, four days, something like that. 400 rom wasn't much, you know. I've forgotten his name for a moment, but anyhow. Um, he was the liaison man between the sponsors, and the sponsors were Datsun. It was the Datsun double wicket competition. So when we... Uh, Binks, his name was. Uh, he... When we went back for the second season, he called us all together and he said, look, guys, um, we... It was so successful last year. The sponsors were really happy. They were they wanted they were happy to pay more money. We asked them to pay more money. They said, "Yeah, we're fine." We went to the South African Cricket Union and told them this. They said, "Oh, before you do that, just give us a, a little bit of time." And they obviously went to England and Australia, Australian boards, and told them they're going to do this. And the answer came back, "No, don't do that because they'll expect more money from us." Whereas if they'd have been smart, you know, these people could have paid us extra money, then there wouldn't have been the pressure on the on the boards mm. to pay so much. So this was the attitude. But the main, you know, I've said a lot of times that Bradman was the main cause of World Series cricket because he, it was just like we were asking him to spend his money, and it was just it was just flat out no. And then the one that I the meeting that I had with him over South Australia because we Kenny Cunningham and John Corsby were both going to retire because they couldn't afford to play anymore because they were having to take their holidays without pay and all that and when I walked out of the meeting with Bradman um, I said to myself Ian did you just walk in there and put your wallet on the table and say Don fill this up with money that's how he made me feel you know so um, so to answer your question I I doubt that uh, because and I was told this by board members uh, that they would sit around in the meeting and when it came to a vote Everyone would wait, and when Bradman put his hand up, the rest... Apparently, the only two who would ever vote against him were Parrish and Steele. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not surprised about Steele. I was surprised about Parrish. But the rest, just wait for Bradman. Whichever way he voted, they voted. So you were 
happy to take him on and, and take the board on because, you know, as you say, you felt like you were representing uh, players who had less power than you had. Um, yep. That same kind of attitude reflected later after your career when you started getting involved in, uh, in, in activism causes, basically. And that kicked off around 2001, did it, when, um, when John Howard's government instigated the Tampa crisis with a, a bunch of refugees stuck on a ship off the north of Australia? Yeah, also before that, uh, the Republican issue. Um, yeah, I, I, I think a lot of it stems from her mother. Jean was very... Uh, I always got the feeling with her there was a very strong sense of fair play. Um, and, uh, you know, I got that trait from Jean, I'm sure. But, uh, yeah, I think I said at the time with the, with the Tampa crisis that uh, you realise as a former captain of Australia, that you, there are times when you do have a slightly louder voice than others. And, you know, I said, I think this is a time when I've got to use sl- this slightly louder voice for people who have no voice, you know. Um, but, yeah, I, I was... A, I was a, uh, see, the, and, and, I mean, I, I know nothing about the legal side, and, and I accept that it's a very, very difficult issue, you know, to, to come up with a fair answer, but there's certainly a, a fairer answer than what we've had. But the, the couple of things that, that have always annoyed me, I would love to ask the politician, John Howard, um, how would you like, you know, if, if you were forced to leave Australia, how would you like you and your family to be treated? Like this? And if he answers yes, he's a bloody dope or a liar. Um, and, and the other thing I'd like to ask politicians is, you know, they keep going on about, oh, we've got to stop the boats and we've got to stop the refugees. Well, what about one of them, just one of them, saying we've got to stop the con- all these conflicts or stop at least stop some of them because that's where the refugees are coming from. And, you know, I read a book a few years ago. His name was Davies. I can't remember his first name. He's a Welsh scientist. It's called Climate Wars. And he, he was talking about how the next wars are going to be fought over water and food, mm. which is bloody obvious because, you know, if you've got, if you've got food and water... Um, and you haven't got it, and you're you're going to head where there is food and water, and you're going to try and keep them away. I mean, it's it, I I liken it to the original convicts coming to Australia. I mean, those poor buggers. Well, most of them were guilty of what stealing a loaf of bread. Uh, I think it had to be over sixpence, didn't it? Any you know, so they were stealing a shilling or a loaf of bread. Why were they doing that? Because they were bloody hungry and their family needed food. So what are you going to do? You're going to just sit back and let your kids starve? No, you're going to try and do something about it. Mm. And if you don't have the wherewithal to to earn the money, you're going to try and steal it. I mean, it's to me, it's. I guess I simplify life too much, but it seems pretty simple to me. It's something you've been involved in for a really long time now as the representative to the UNHCR. You've been a patron of Adjust Australia. I mean, as recently as a couple of years ago, you were writing columns for the paper when the Rohingya crisis was happening in Myanmar. And I read that piece uh, in preparing for this interview and, and you sort of litigated the case of why it's fairly amazing a country like Bangladesh can take in such an influx of refugees. Do you look at that Incident on that that sort of horrible situation over there in Burma and the, the refugee flow to, to Bangladesh, and then look at Australia by contrast, where we've had such a an inability to uh, bring people here in, in certain certainly in recent times, and, and see that contrast. Does that frustrate you as as someone who's um, you know advocated for the fair treatment of refugees for a really long time? I'll tell you when it really hit me. We went to Baxter, uh, we, yep. shooting the uh, that program for um, Australian Story. 
Australian story, yep. I think. Yes, it was. The, Australian uh, story. Baxter Detention Centre. Yeah. Right. So, we, And in driving to Baxter, we went past the Port Augusta Jail. Anyhow, we got in there talking to a few people, you see, and there was this young Bangladesh guy. And because he's a Bangladeshi, he, you know, he wanted to chat a bit of cricket, you see. And sure. after we'd chatted for a while, he said, uh, what do you think of this place, Ian? And I said, well, I said, I've just driven past the Port Augusta jail. I said, it looks like a jail to me. He said, no, it's worse than a jail. He said, when you're in jail, he said, if you obey the rules, you get benefits from it. He said, here, if you obey the rules and one other person doesn't obey, the, you all get punished for it. He said, it's worse than jail. And I said, you sound like you're talking from experience. And he said, and I said, have you been in jail? He said, yeah, I was in a Malaysian jail. And this is worse than a Malaysian mm. jail. And that's, on that day, I wasn't very proud of the country that I was born mm. in. You know? and, and I've always said that the wor- I think the worst thing that could possibly happen to anybody is you're forced to leave the country you're born in. I think one of the frustrating things with the way these issues are litigated in politics in Australia is that there's there's this strong push to split it. You're either left-wing or you're right-wing. This is a thing that left-wing people believe. This is a thing that right-wing people believe. When it's nothing near so simple, you know, they're, they're, in a way they're much more simple issues. From my perspective, it's about do you want to treat people well? Do you want to be a good person yeah. to other people? And it's as simple as that. And it yeah. doesn't... There shouldn't be a political persuasion on it. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think it's something where both sides should just get together and sort something out. Uh, but unfortunately, I don't know what period, but certainly the last decade, it, it's politics seems to be purely about staying in power. Um, and if you can come up with an issue that'll, you know, wedge the opposition and, and help you stay in power, that's the way it's used. To me, this is not a uh, this is not a political um, situation. This is a humanitarian situation where you've got to try and do, you know, what's best for for you know people who are obviously <clears throat> severely inconvenienced. Um, so. But, uh, you know, do I think it's going to happen? Well, I'm not going to hang by the neck waiting for it to happen, no. <laughs> well, the two issues that people could identify as being politically weaponised in the way you're talking about it, refugee policy, or asylum seekers and, and climate change, and, and you've also um, stapled your callous to the mast on that a couple of years ago uh, in relation to the Adani mine in, in Queensland. So you're not swinging at every pitch, so to speak, to go back to the baseball parlance, but you have decided over the years to pick certain issues where you feel strongly about. If you can sort of elaborate on why you thought you should use your megaphone to, to speak more about climate change. I've always felt that if you just shoot your mouth off at every issue, then people eventually just say, oh, he's just one of those blokes who just likes to shoot his mouth off and he likes the publicity and all that sort of business. So, and also... I've got to feel like it's something where I want to thump the table, you know, where it makes me angry enough to want to thump the table. If I'm just a bit pissed off about it, you know, I'll, I'll voice my opinion in the bar or, you know, to talking with my mates, but I'm not going to sort of thump the table about it. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm married to a scientist and Barbara Ann has been going on about climate change for 20 years, I reckon. Mm. And so... You know, because of her, obviously she's, you know, she explains things to me so I understand them a little bit better. And because of her, I watch programs that inform me better. And I also, I've read things. And to me, it's, you know, I mean, forget this 
bullshit about, you know, the jury's out on the science. I mean, the jury hasn't been out on the science for... Someone, as someone said to me the other day, when I was Julian King, actually, we were discussing it. He said, when 97% of the scientists uh, say, you know, this is the situation, there's a fair chance that that is the situation. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an issue that... Um, uh, the, you know, where I feel like thumping the table um, and that's when I sort of do make some public statements. And just quickly and following up, how did it feel having, uh, having you being, you and others who signed that letter being called an elitist wanker by the government? I, I don't imagine that's the sort of tag that anyone's, anyone's given to you before. Well, I, I don't have a very high opinion of a lot of the politicians, so... Um, if they disagreed with me, I perhaps thought then I was on the right, might be on the right track. <laughs> you, you talked about wanting to have a plurality of voices around you when you're a captain, and it seemed like in, in those in an issue like the refugee issue, having a voice like yours was important because it wasn't necessarily the kind of voice people were expecting to pop up on TV ads. You know, where where they might be able to dismiss other people as as being sort of too far to the left of politics or whatever it was. You were someone who you weren't politically aligned. You were. You you're an Australian test captain. You you have have a certain gravitas in the centre of, of things rather than belonging on a political fringe. Yeah, I I, I think the what was the, the program that I did with the Australian Story? I think they called it not the usual suspects or something. And I I think they were or Just Australia was. Uh, pretty keen to get me involved because I wasn't exactly what you said a, a you know someone who'd uh, had a lot to say on different issues or I wasn't basically aligned politically and, and I remember when I, I was I was I was a special what am I special representative for Australia for UNHCR first and then <clears throat> Mike Howard actually rang me and asked me about joining Adjust Australia and I said. Uh, Mike, you know, I'm, I'm interested, but I want to just check with uh, Australia for UNHCR first because I'm working for them and I don't want to do something that cuts across what they're doing. So I rang Naomi, uh, Naomi Steer, and I, I told her what I was thinking about. And she said, that's fine, Ian. Uh, we'll come and visit you in jail. <laughs> Which sort of, oh, Jesus, is it going to get like that, is it? But, um, but it, it does... The other thing you find about standing up is you start to get requests for a lot of things to to speak out on them and and it can be difficult to say no not not so much because I don't think I should say no but you sort of you you can almost hear them saying well mate you you know you've been involved with this issue and that issue why won't you get involved with our issues sure. so and you know, suddenly you're expected to comment on every damn thing, and and as I say, I think you wear out your welcome if you. Uh, yeah, it's it's a little bit like what I felt as a captain about speaking. You know, I, I speeches, in my opinion, don't make any difference at all. I mean, I I just cringe every time I see these bloody huddles, and you know, I mean, how many speeches a day are they hearing? My theory was that if I didn't say much. And then suddenly I said, oh, boys, just before we go, have you thought about this or thought about... My feeling was they'd be saying to themselves, Jesus, he doesn't normally make a speech. This must be important. And, you know, so I, I sort of worked on the same theory that if, you, if you're shooting your mouth off about everything, people, it'll just go in one ear and out the other. But if you suddenly speak up about something when you're not... when you haven't done a lot of it, people 
you hope people will say, oh, shit, hang on, he, he must be quite serious about this. You, you turned 75 last year, September last year, and it feels as though your activism isn't winding back. If anything, you're, you're, you're more active in that space than you ever have been before. Is that, is that how you feel you want to continue leading your life? You want to be out there litigating case for the causes that you believe in? And Oh, I think that's going to stop uh, sooner or later, probably probably sooner rather than later because I think you know you do sort of wear out in life a bit you know I mean I I wore out as a captain four years of that and I'd you know I remember when we were walking to the press conference at the Oval in 75 I was walking down there with Fred Bennett and I told him I said mate I'm going to resign from the captaincy oh mate mate you're tired you're tired you know that's I said yeah I know I'm tired Fred, but I'm, I'm also, I'm buggered, you know, mentally mm. I was shot. And so, you know, life can wear you out as well and I think it probably there'll come a time where I'll say, look, I'd just like to, you know, quietly live out what's left. Um, you know, I, I think there'll come a time when I stop banging the table, yeah. The last couple of years where there's been a lot of talk about Australian behaviour on the field, ugly Australians, all the sledging, and a lot of people have pinned that on you as sort of mm. the, the, the starting point of that. How does that sit with you? It annoys the hell out of me, yeah. Um, and, yeah, there's, there's a couple of things I say to people. Go and read Clive Lloyd's book, because I played a, lot, a hell of a lot probably against Clive Lloyd more than any other captain. And I said, have a look what he said. He said, I played a lot of cricket against the Chapel brothers. They played hard but fair. And I said, Martin would be happy because that's what he told us. Mm. Play hard, but play fair. You know, when this, the cultural review was going on uh, recently, you know, I, I answered the question by saying, I was never in any doubt that if Martin thought that I'd cheated on the cricket field, if he was in the crowd, even if it was a test match, he'd have come on the field and grabbed me by the scruff of the neck, <laughs> hauled me off and said, you know, when you can behave yourself properly, you go back on. Mm. And... You know, other people who say, oh, you know, there was a lot of sledging in your time. I say, mate, go and look up the Macquarie Dictionary and look up the, you know, the meaning of sledging. And it says, you know, it's a long time since I've read it, but it, it goes on something about uh, abusive batsmen trying to unsettle them or, you know, get their mind off what they should be on. Yep. And I said, mate, when you've got Lily, Thompson, Walker, Gilmore and Mallet in your attack, you don't have to say anything to unsettled batsmen. I, there were two or three things that really annoyed me on the cricket field. One of them was a boycott did it to us once. Mike Brealey was the captain of England, 79-80. It was South Australia versus MCC. And he played forward. Uh, there was a noise. We appealed for court behind. And before the umpire had given the decision, boycott was padding his pad. Now, in my opinion, that's cheating because you're trying to influence the umpire's decision if you do it before he's given the decision. And I told Boycott, as I told a lot of other blokes when that happened, mate, you get on with your batting, leave the appealing to us, let the umpire make the decision and we'll all be a lot happier. Now, because I swear a lot, there would have been a swear word or two in there. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, and I said that to a few people. Now, I think there are some who thought that I was trying to unsettle a batsman. That, that was nothing to do with unsettle a batsman. You know, the incident with Glenn Turner, for instance, um, Brian Hastings hit the ball, Turner was down the non-striker's end, and they had this stupid, only in New Zealand could they do it, they had, there was a wire fence at uh, Christchurch, it would have been um, Lancaster Park in mm. those days, and, and the grass ran there, and then there was this uh, cement gutter, 
as I say, only in New Zealand could they do it. If the ball ran off the grass into the gutter, hit the fence, four, right? That's no problem. Ball goes over the wire fence, six, no problem there. If the ball lands on the full in the gutter, it's a six. I mean, only cricket administrators and probably only New Zealand could possibly think of that. I mean, it's ludicrous. It just makes life so hard for the bloody umpire, poor old umpire. So anyhow, Hastings hit one and the crowd were quite boisterous and there was a big crowd. And it went out and to me it looked like it bounced, hit the wire fence and came back. So it's four. Bob Monteith signaled six because the crowd were all out there and they were, yeah, six, six, six. And I think Bob was a bit of a nervy character and he signaled six. So I went down and I said, Bob, where did that bloody ball bounce? Because, I mean, if he said it bounced in the gutter, well, I'd have just gone back to first limb and so. And before he answered, Glenn Turner started saying something to me and I said shut up you I'm not talking to you I'm talking to him Bob where did that bloody ball bounce and again before he answers me Turner butts in again I says listen mate I fucking told you to shut up now fucking shut up and then Bob eventually said look I think I've made a mistake here and it's only four so you know I went back um then uh, about, I don't know, not long after that, Turner got down on strike to Ashley Mallett and so Rodney was standing up and I'd, I must have been down talking to Ashley Mallett and as I'm running back, Glenn's bloody whinging and moaning to Rodney and I said, hey, listen, you, fucking shut up and stop annoying my players. Get on with your batting. And Rodney said to me afterwards, he, he said, mate, you just beat me because I was about to tell him the same thing. Mm. Now, when we came off the field that night, Doug had a go at me because he said that Glenn was trying to support what I was saying, that it wasn't a six. I said, Doug, I didn't give a fuck what Glenn thought. I was talking to the umpire. I didn't want to be interrupted by him, you know. So now, you know, that was taken as trying to unsettle Glenn. That wasn't trying to unsettle him. It was just trying to sort out a situation uh, on the field, yeah. The the way things boil over. Um, Yeah, Mike Brearley spoke about this pretty recently, actually, and then sort of backs up what you were saying, that he said when, when he was playing against your side... Things boiled over from time to time, but it was never, a, you know, a, a deliberate campaign. And that, and he said most of it was generally pretty good-natured um, in one way or another. See, th- this is what I object to, and I, I get really cranky when administrators, umpires, players, referees, the whole shooting match also is part of the game. It's not bloody part of the game. Yeah, I, I, the first thing I'd say to James Sutherland, oh, it's part of the game. I felt like going to James saying, James, come on, get the law book out and show me. Where does it say that it's part of the game? It's not part of the game, it's bullshit. And what I say is exactly what Mike Brearley said, that it annoys me, like uh, the Australians said about Rabada before the South African tour, oh, we know he's on so many points, he's near suspension, we might try and bait him. You know, now that's, that's bollocks. Um, so what I've always said is, None of it was premeditated. You know, the, sitting around in a team meeting and saying, oh, Jeff Lemon, he, we can unsettle him if we talk about something or other. Yeah, that's, that's bloody bollocks. And the second thing I've always said is, you know, there were things said on the field when we played, but it was, it was heat of the moment stuff. And the other good advantage we had back then was that 
most, with most teams, you'd sit around and have a beer afterwards. And the number of times you'd sort of sit there, you know, shield cricket or even, you know, international cricket, and the bloke sitting across from you, you've, you know, you've been having a to and fro earlier in the day, you got a beer in your hand, you look at each other and you, th- and you say, fucking hell, how stupid was that today? <laughs> and you laugh about it. And so you've brought it back down to not nothing, but you've brought it way down. So whereas if you don't do that, the thing's still at boiling point the next day and you're starting from boiling point and, you know, that's when things can get really inflamed. So, But I, I do get very, very annoyed when uh, when we get the blame for it. And by contrast to that harder side, there's the, I mean, Ashley Mallett's written about your, your softer side and, and your mother telling him that, that, he, that you had this sort of you're always by nature a compassionate softer person internally to that end I'm, I'm curious about your your your, uh, your interpretation of the way that your brother Greg gets smashed pretty hard in the media these days and I mean as we record this today last night there was a documentary about the underarm incident for instance which of course featured your other brother Trevor how does it affect you when when your your two brothers have been um, in the firing line uh, Greg more recently but also then in 1981 and also even the fact that Trevor was on the front page of the Daily Telegraph last year um, during the sandpaper crisis and trying to link the two things together and so on like what, what sort of emotions does that does that bring up for you firstly you know I, I've always got the shits when Trevor gets the blame for it because you know he didn't have any choice you know mm. one it's his captain telling him to do it and two it's an older brother so how the hell is he gonna say no mate I'm not doing it you know so it really annoys me that Trevor gets the blame for it uh, that was total bollocks the you know what was written last year about you know, it, it it affected Trevor for yeah. you know whatever it said. It had been affecting him for a long time. I mean, I see Trevor pretty regularly. He plays golf at uh, at Long Reef, which is just down the road. Right. Friday afternoons, uh, he comes down here, or I go and meet him somewhere. We have dinner We're pretty on a pretty regular basis. So I'm seeing Trevor. You know, I've been seeing him over all these years. He's not affected by the bloody thing. I mean, he's he's probably like a lot of other people. He's sick to death of hearing about the damn of course, thing. Yeah. Purely on the basis that, for Christ's sake, it happened all those years ago. Can't we just forget about it? You know, and, um, but he's never, you know, he, he copped it on the chin, and um, and that's the way he is. You know, I disagreed with Greg ordering it in in the uh, in the first place, and I wrote about that. We sorted that out. I, you know, I don't have to defend Greg. Uh, I two two things, uh, two little stories. I'll tell you. Um, Greg, he was an opponent most, mostly to me uh, mm. for many years because that's what we were in the backyard and we didn't play any cricket together. First cricket we played together, we, we played baseball together before we played cricket together and he came into the, into the Glenelg side when he left school and we were playing in a semi-final. I, I'd, I think it was the first time I'd played with him in a club game I think I must have been off playing test match or shield match I think he'd played a couple but I was away this is the first time I'm playing with him or first time I recall playing with him Neil Hawke was in the opposition Eric Freeman was in the opposition so two test match bowlers and we were in a bit of trouble um, anyhow Hawkey got Greg out LBW and I I felt really angry I, I felt like going to Hawkey and saying mate pick on someone your own bloody size you know not size but capability and 
that was in the semi-final. We finished up getting the runs and getting into the grand final. I got out for three in the grand final and Greg got 50 odd and I thought, I don't have to, I don't have to protect this bloke any longer. <laughs> um, so from then on, and, and I knew that I didn't have to look after Greg too much. I mean, from a, out in the backyard, I remember there was one incident where he nicked one and, you know, we had all these... There was a garage and a lean-to. They were the slips and then you had other... Uh, Martin had wire netting covering some of the fruit trees. If you hit them on the full, you're out. Anyhow, Greg's nicked this thing and it's hit the something. I said, you're out, mate, go on. Go and fill in the scorebook and come back as the next... Didn't hit it. I said, mate, you hit it. Now piss off and fill the scorebook in. Didn't hit it. So eventually I've got his right arm up behind his back trying to get him to admit that he's hit this bloody thing. He's a kid, poor kid's only about probably nine or ten maybe. And eventually it got to the point where I thought, shit, Ian, you keep going, you'll break his bloody arm here. And so I backed off and uh, and then Jean, Jean would have come out. She was the first third umpire, Jean. She'd come out and, what's going on? What's all this noise about? So this little bastard, he's nicked one and he won't go out. And the third umpire always came up with the same decision. <laughs> oh, he's younger, darling. You know, you just give him another go. And Greg always used to say that was the worst decision possible because then I'd bounce the crap out of him because he wouldn't go out. But So I knew at that young age that he was a very, very determined bloke. And, you know, Greg will, Greg will be hurt by it I know that but uh, he you know he'll just handle it in his own way and uh, uh, the blokes that he's really pissed off about I wouldn't like to be them because he'll find a way to let them know that he's pissed off with them have you communicated since he stepped down as a, a selector? Just when, again, we're recording uh, the, a few days after that's been made clear. Do you, like, do you talk on on that kind of regular basis? You pick up the phone and ring him on a, on oh, a big day yeah, like that. We, we chat quite a bit, but I had dinner with him. Uh, what was that Saturday night in Canberra? Oh, so right. he, the day he, the story broke. He, yeah, but I, he told me a few days before that okay. it, that it was going to happen. But you know, he said, "Keep it to yourself." You know, he said, "I think I've just." I'd got no more fights left in me, you know. Um, and I know, you know, I've, I said, well, mate, that's how I felt in 75 when I resigned the captaincy. I didn't have any more fights left in me, yeah. And what are these dinners like when you two catch up? Do you talk about, you know, making twin tons in the same test match or do you talk about anything of your days as cricket or is it all either forward-looking or, or other parts of your lives? We talk about things other than cricket, um, but we do talk a lot of cricket. No, we don't, uh, you know, we don't talk about... Uh, what we did or anything like that it's mostly about the uh, you know the game that's going on at the time or the modern game um you know I think sometimes when he's a selector he not that he's saying this to me but I think he's picking my brains a little bit about what I think about yep. certain players we we don't uh, we don't have many arguments but when we do it's usually a pretty good one <laughs> Um, you've got this sort of reputation as being quite a, a hard-edged character, as you've just described, the, the backyard brawls and, and the rest of it. But there's another side with a couple of the cases we were looking at in, in researching this with, say, Terry Jenner and Chuck Fleetwood-Smith who ran into trouble in their personal lives, Gary Gilmore when he got very sick. We, you've, you've shown a much uh, more gentle side in trying to help people out who are in strife, who, who were close to you. It's going to sound pretty funny when I say this to, to a lot of people. It'll sound funny. I, I really don't like confrontation. You know, I'm, uh, I, I try and avoid it where I can. But, 
you know, you're in a situation where you're captain of Australia, so it's it's going to happen. And I, you know, strangely enough, I when there is confrontation, I can, you know, I quite enjoy getting into it. But most of the time, I try and avoid it. Um, another thing I've always said is that once you're their captain, you're their captain for all time. The thing, you know, obviously with with Terry. Um, you know, I wrote a piece saying that I that he didn't he had a problem he had a sickness basically he needed help not jail and I did write that he would uh, he would be a very good coach uh, which he turned out to be mm-hmm. but I remember I spoke to David Hill uh, when he came out of jail and I said is it all right if I do an interview with Terry Jenner and he said yeah go if you like mate that'd be terrific and. He was. I knew he was around near the member stand at the Adelaide Oval, as it used to be configured, and uh, we had to do the interview back at the media end of the ground. You see, so I went and got TJ. I said, TJ, we're walking. We're walking back. You're walking back with me, and I said, we're not going around the back. We're because you know, remember, you used to be able to go around around the back of the Adelaide Oval. I said, we're walking around the front, and I said, you hold your bloody head up high. You've got no reason to hang your head. And um, and he said, uh, you know, he said sometime later, I think probably when he wrote his book, that it, that it meant a lot to him, the fact that I actually walked with him and made him walk around the front. Yeah. The, the the Chuck Fleetwood Smith thing uh, that was more, I, I suppose, because he played in my grandfather's time mm. and he played with my grandfather. And I read Greg Groudon's book, and uh, you know, just the the thought of an Australian cricketer getting to the point where he's drinking methylated spirits, and on a good night he's mixing a bit of orange juice with it. I, I thought, Jesus, you know, how how do you get to that point? And I, I I must have been talking to Bill Jacobs about it, I think, and um, uh, and. And I must have mentioned it to Bob Massey, and Bob said he was interested. And and when I spoke to Fagan, Bill Jacobs, about it, he said he knew where he'd slept on the banks of the Yarra. And I said, can you show me? And, mate, we went down there. So it was a Boxing Day test match, so it's late December. We went down there. It was bloody freezing in late December. And he showed, showed us, Bob and I, the spot where he slept. And then we went up to the Young and Jackson's and had a couple of beers there because I, I really feel, felt like I needed a beer after seeing it. It was just... It was more the fact that thinking that an Australian cricketer could get so far down mm. that he'd be drinking methylated spirits. But, you know, I mean, Gus, TJ, they... You know, they did a lot for me as a captain, as bowler. I mean, Gus, six for 14 in the World Cup semi-final. TJ got... 200 odd wickets for South Australia a lot of them under my captaincy they you know they were guys who put in under my captaincy and as I said once you're their captain you're their captain for all time so you talk about your interviewing Terry Jen I mean this has been a, a, a A strong theme of your post-playing life There's been the commentary, the the Channel 9 personality Which obviously obviously everyone has seen you on the television But the writing side of it um, You've always read a lot and you've always written a lot That isn't normal as a cricketer most cricketers that finish up playing and have a column have it ghostwritten and, and uh, sort of notoriously um, the, you know, a, lot of the, a lot of people who are involved in cricket don't take a lot of interest in literature and so forth but, but you've, you've defied the, the norm on both fronts is that um, something you take a lot of pride in and is that, is that why you're still sitting with us in the press box writing your columns I mean you're the one person that comes and sits with us to this day 
Yeah, um, well, the reason I sit in the press box is a bit quieter than, than the commentary box. That's, <laughs> that's one reason. But, you know, I mean, I know so many of the journos and I always feel comfortable mixing with them and so on. So I, I just I enjoy writing. I guess it was English was the one subject that I was any good at, stroke, interested in at school. Um, Barbara Ann gave me some pretty good advice. At uh, one stage she said, make sure you read good writers because at least that way you'll understand what good writing is, which was good advice. It was quite a, a poignant thing, I guess, for, for those of us who, you know, watched nine commentary for a long period of time and then it's wrapped up but you know uh, Richie's gone Tony's gone uh, Bill Bill had all but retired at the time did it was it almost um, a relief that it finished up or were you were you sad to walk away from it um I you know I, I looked at it this way that I had 40 years of it so I I thought that I was pretty lucky um I thought a bit sorry for guys like Tom Malone and Brent Williams uh, and a few others who had really just started uh, and I I thought the last couple of years things things were uh, were I, I was really enjoying it um and, and I thought they were doing some good things so I really felt sad for them that it that it came to an end because uh, you know they they hadn't had the opportunity to spend forty years at it like like I had. Um, uh, so that was. Other than that, I I guess I've just always felt that uh, it's going to come to an end sooner or later. And the fact that it lasted forty years, I think I was pretty damn lucky. Ian, we could sit here talking to you, I suspect, for, for several hours. But um, due to uh, factors outside of our control, that, that must be the time where we call it quits. But for your words, your, your commentary, your, your leadership and, and the massive contribution you've left on the game and for joining us today, uh, thanks for being part of the final word. Pleasure, guys. Thank you. This is the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. So signing off, Jeff, uh, great, wasn't it? A lot of fun talking to Ian Chappell about a whole raft of issues, uh, as we said at the start. A colourful conversation, but one well worth having. Particularly enjoyable for the um, the bits of listening back through to it on various forms of public transport and then surprising people sitting across from me by bursting out laughing at inappropriate moments. And thanks again to our loyal patron subscribers. That's patron.com forward slash the final word. If you want to get involved in the nerd pledge we look forward to reading out a few of those later in the week and of course as well thank you to kookaburra cricket if it ain't cook up it ain't cricket thanks to jay Mueller and bad producer productions for the behind the scenes support that gets the podcast out there and uh, thanks to everyone for listening if you want to drop us a review or a rating on itunes or other platforms all that stuff helps or just pass the podcast on let people know if they might be interested in it we have got a lot of stuff to cover in the next few weeks it's suddenly looking very close to that world cup it's going to be very busy indeed there'll be uh, any amount of previewing that needs to go on before we actually get stuck into the tournament and then it's going to be daily short podcast throughout the final word world cup daily we're going to see if we survive that seven weeks of endless ridiculous cricket it's like the ironic punishment division (laughs) more more more. <laughs> I had a look at yesterday, Jeff. We're going to be doing 47 podcasts in 47 days. So uh, buckle up and get ready for that. Thankfully, they won't be too long, but it should be a lot of fun along the way. Right, that's about enough from us. Uh, thanks for listening to The Final Word. As ever, we can't wait to do it all again later in the week. See you next time. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself.